KSQD Santa Cruz 90.7 FM. I'm Deanna Riley, and today on the Hive Poetry Collective, I'm going to be talking to one of my favorite poets, Gregory Orr. Gregory Orr has written 12 poetry collections and another one on the way, a memoir, and several books of criticism. Most recently, a primer for poets and readers of poetry. He is the recipient of an award in literature from the American Academy of Arts and Letters, as well as fellowships from the Guggenheim Foundation and the National Endowment for the Arts. Or lives in Charlottesville, Virginia. Welcome, Greg. Thank you. It's so nice to have you with me today here on The Hive. We're going to primarily be reading from your current book, which is called The Last Love Poem I Will Ever Write from Norton. But you have a new book and you might come back and talk about that book too. Do you wanna tell our audience about your new book when it's coming out, et cetera? Well, it's coming out this August. It's called Selected Books of the Beloved coming out with Copper Canyon Press. And it's collecting together a number of poems that I've written, lyric poems on the theme of the book and the beloved. And so really it's about, it's a thick book, it's about 530 poems. And, uh, and uh, that's all there is to say. And I'm so is it, kind of, is it kind of new and selected of your lyric work? No, in 2003, I started writing to a theme that I would call the beloved and the, the loss and resurrection of the beloved, uh, resurrected into songs and poems, resurrected into the world as the world, the kind of experience of love as an influx of meaning into life, and then the inevitability of loss, the need for renewal, for return, for what I call resurrection, although I do not mean that in any kind of theological sense, but uh, renewal of the, the principle of love and the principle of connection to the world. And so these are all poems about that theme. Um, and they have really just come from 2003 up till, uh, till now. Uh, and I wanted to collect them all together because they seem to me to be uh, uh, trying to do some kind of larger, Oh, I don't know what to call lyric metaphysical project. And uh, it kind of reminds me of Rumi and his loss of his beloved and and then a finding once again of his beloved in a different form, which informs his work. Yeah, absolutely. Um, the um, 
and and get that interesting thing with Sufi poetry, which which um, you're referring to here with with Rumi, which is uh, the loss of his beloved. In a sense, seems to me it would have been Shams, this guru who came into his life and changed his life toward poetry. In fact, the first poems he wrote in the signature line, he used to to assign them Shams rather than Rumi, which is really bizarre psychologically. But of course, the Sufi poets were supposed to be Muslim mystics. And so the beloved was supposed to be God. And in fact, in Christian religion, in, in um, Islam, it's incredibly important that the beloved not be human or mortal. Whereas for me, it's a completely important that the, the beloved is mortal that whether it's a creature or a place that we love or a person or even a tree, um, it is um, subject to the laws of our own being, which are loss. Uh, and and it's, there's, no, there's no deity in my world, he said. So we're sort of leading toward that first poem, aren't we? Yeah, I feel like if anyone's read your memoir or read some of your poetry, there was an event early in your life that you write about that taught you about loss. And maybe, I don't know, you'd have to say maybe transformed you into a poet. <laughs> I, I don't know. Um, yeah, I, I, I think the event itself or several events like it, my brother's death, my mother's death shortly after, they. I would say what they did is they traumatized me as a person. And that is to say, threatened to shatter my sense of self and my sense that there's meaning in the world because that's one of the things that trauma does. So in that sense, in the sense that I was shattered by these experiences um, that could point toward the possibility of poetry. But I mean, I certainly didn't have poetry for uh, the five years of agony after their deaths, after this event, which we'll get to. Um, uh, a high school librarian brought me to the possibility of writing poems. And that brought the possibility of making meaning or finding meaning back into the world. I think the other path that I was tempted to take toward meaning the premise behind this is that you cannot live without meaning, that meanings make it possible to exist in the world. And after my brother's death and my mother's death, I didn't feel there were meanings uh, for me. So poetry became one possible path of meaning and another was uh, social action. Um, I was a volunteer in the civil rights movement, uh, a Northern volunteer going South when I was 18. And, that was pretty, um, that was re-traumatizing, let's say. Uh, uh, yeah, if anyone is interested in what happened to Gregory Orr when he was a civil rights activist, it's an amazing story in his memoir, The Blessing. But why don't we turn then to the first two poems in your book, um, The Last Love Poem I Will Ever Write, which are a little different from some of the other poems in the book, I guess a little more narrative. Um, and why don't you just go ahead and read, and so, and we'll talk about that a little bit in the context of 
order and disorder and trauma and uh, healing. Great. And so, he's already in heaven, she said, sitting down to feast with Jesus. Back then, if I had been eight or 10 and she had been a peer instead of an adult, I might have said, you must have a hole in your head. You, you must be crazy. But I was 12 and though I thought she was insane, I was too polite and frightened to say as much. And the hole was not a metaphor but one a bullet had made that day in my brother's head. And I was the one who put it there. I wonder if she was thinking of the painted window in our dinky church, the one where Jesus sat at a picnic table with bread and a jug of something. Was it an image of the wedding at Cana or the last supper before any of the other guests had arrived? He didn't look lonely. He just sat with his arms spread and his empty hands open as if he was patiently waiting for someone to put something in them, a plate of food, some nails, a gun. Who knows what he was up to, what he thought or felt. He was in his world and I was in mine. This is all I knew that was true. I was alive, my brother was dead. When I closed my eyes, I saw him lying at my feet. I knew God and I were through. And after that, what is there? I imagined I was floating alone in a vast abyss like a little cloud, but I wasn't. I was falling as fast as a material body can. But the distance was infinite and there was nothing near by which to judge what was happening. And so it seemed I wasn't moving at all. That was Gregory Orr reading the first poem and so, from his collection, The Last Love Poem I Will Ever Write. This is Dion O'Reilly. This is the Hive Poetry Collective at KSQD Santa Cruz 90.7 FM. Wow. It's just such a devastating thing to happen to a young person. And then to have an adult say, he's already in heaven, your brother, sitting down to feast with Jesus. Well, yeah. we could call it premature consolation. 
but it was it was it was it what it didn't it didn't work what it did is it it sort of shattered forever my ability to imagine such a place as heaven or or um such a a world in which these things happen well there we go well i think that we create myth and religion as a way of coping with the suffering of the world and things that happen but the narratives that are given to us to cope with our lives sometimes are just inefficient and yet people are so deeply attached to them well i can understand that i would i would be attached to any myth or story that had the ability to sustain me emotionally spiritually intellectually all three or any of the above but one of the things um that happens is that uh, uh, trauma can shatter easy structures of explanation, easy structures of meaning. And then suddenly the traumatized person is, is at a loss for meaning, which is why poetry is so wonderful because it says to the individual, it says, you know, turn your experience into words turn your world into words and the, the page, the empty page will accept everything. And then when you turn all this confusion or joy, it could be, you could be crazy with love. Uh, you turn this confusion into words, put them on the page and order them. Uh, you're in the process of creating meaning for yourself, creating your own stories, uh, creating the, the poem itself is, is meaning. It doesn't mean something. It it is meaning, and it's and we all know that when we write poems. Or I love the word craft mm -hmm. when you craft poem because a craft is a container that moves you forward. It has to have a certain shape uh, when it's a noun, and when you turn it into a verb, means you're making a shape for something. <laughs> okay. uh, so just for our audience, I'm here on a ranch with all these animals around. So um, that was not a bull running through my living room. That was my dog. And Gregory's in, in Virginia with some animals. So sometimes we have these invaders in coming into the Hive Poetry Collective. Um, so I don't know how much of that you all heard. I might be bleeping some of it out, but we were talking about very appropriately, the disorder that enters our lives and how poetry orders it. And that is a theme or maybe an obsession of yours, isn't it, Greg? How- Absolutely. How poetry takes the inevitable disorder of our lives and brings order to it. Absolutely. and. Uh... Again, I'd want to emphasize that, that in, in thinking about disorder and order, the disorder is not always negative. Um, granted, given the poem that I just read and given the, the term trauma has entered the story, um, you know, obviously that is a negative, destructive uh, disorder. But of course, to fall passionately in love with somebody has been certified as being a great disordering experience. Uh, yes, it does seem to have some premise of 
possible order somewhere on the horizon, but nobody who's fallen in love ever thinks, oh, this is it. Now settle down, get a bank account or something and whatever. You know, it's, it's chaos. It's emotional chaos and experiential chaos, emotional chaos. That's what we, that's what we experience in this world of time and body. And so culture gives us this great gift. It gives us uh, lyric poetry, which I'm also going to say is the same thing as popular song. It gives us this highly patterned language phenomena. Always, no matter how you define poetry and whatever culture you're in, it's always the most patterned, concentrated form of language use. It's full of rhyme or repetition or syntactical parallelism, syllable count. It's highly ordered. And then you put in the chaos of joy and despair or confusion and, and they create this dynamic whole. The order of the language doesn't destroy the disorder. As you said earlier, it contains it. And it contains it, I would say, transparently so that you can see the disorder flashing and writhing inside that, that ordering structure. And that's very exciting. Plus, we've moved it outside ourselves. If we were suffering joy or despair, by turning it into words and turning it into a poem, we've, we've allowed ourselves to get a little distance from it, the distance of displacing it into language. And we've taken power, we've shaped it, so that it's this incredible assertion of uh, individual um, agency it's sort of, cool it's sort of like a, it's sort of like a god creating a planet or a sun or something like here's some gravity and and like here's all this energy that's contained with this gravity and it's like contained into a ball and it's uh, pretty cosmic really. it's pretty cosmic we're going to have to watch out for hubris here though <laughs> the, the vanity of poets is is a, a sad long story well, all you have to do is sit down and try to write a poem and, and uh, realize yeah. the pride cometh before a fall. It's like, okay, <laughs> this is not so good. Well, why don't we move to the second poem in your book, um, Song of What Happens, which is a continuation for the first poem. And to, to just sort of reinforce this event, um, and the complexity and weird coincidental fact of your life here early on, and then move into the lyric, more lyric poems. So could you go ahead and read Song of What Happens? Sure. Song of What Happens. If I wrote in a short story or novel that when my father was young, about 13, he and his best friend stole a rifle from the car trunk of a man who worked for his family, then took paper plates from the kitchen and went out to a field, intending to toss them into the air and shoot them. That there'd been an accident and he killed his best friend sad but believable. It happens more often than you'd imagine in the country. But then I add, my dad grew up 
married, had four sons, gave each of the two oldest shotguns when they were 12 and 10, so they could all hunt pheasants. And when I turned 12, he gave me a rifle, a 22. And that same year, we went hunting deer in a far field on our property. And my gun that I didn't know was loaded, went off and killed my younger brother who was standing beside me. Two boys, my father and I, barely in their teens, killing two others they loved by accident. That kind of coincidence isn't credible in fiction, much less in a poem where you're not allowed to describe too much or explain or ascribe motives because each word is precious and the fewer you use, the better the poem. And yet, I'm telling you, it's true. It really happened. All of us can see the pattern here. Two young boys kill someone they love by accident. But do you think God planned it? And if so, why? Do you think my father unconsciously arranged a repetition, hoping it would end differently? I'm happy for you if you can explain it to your satisfaction. I can't. I'm only telling you about it because it's factual. It happened. And because I want you to know how strange life is. That was Gregory Orr reading Song of What Happens from his book, The Last Love Poem I Will Ever Write. This is Deanna Riley. This is the Hive Poetry Collective at KSQD Santa Cruz 90.7 FM and KSQD.org. Um, you know, I, I think one of the parts of this I like the most, well, first off, I really like that the speaker acknowledges that, this, that the reader might find this impossible to believe. Um, it's sort of a preemptive strike um, on the reader's um, incredulity. Uh, so I, I love that. I love, it's kind of like theory of mind. You're anticipating the reader's thoughts and you're going, you know, you might not believe this. Um, and then once again, um, there's more theory of mind in this. There's more anticipating what someone might think. Someone might think, well, God planned it. God has a plan for you. And some people might think maybe, you know, psychologists might think, well, you recreate the same scenario over and over in your life so that maybe it will happen differently the next time. Like people just keep getting in the same kind of, a different version of the same kind of bad relationship over and over, hoping it will have a different result. So you're kind of playing with 
people going, well, I, I can tell you why this happened. But the poem is saying, like poems so often do, the world is a mystery. Yeah. And yep. let's, let's embrace mystery. We have no choice, do we? I mean, I mean, yeah. I mean, that's, I think that's one, another definition of what poems try to do. Uh, embrace some significant mystery. In this case, the mystery of, oh, I don't know what. Disorder, I guess. Disorder. Yeah. Bad violence. But the irony is, like you said, when you do craft the mystery, you do give it a local habitation and a name. You, you <laughs> do give it some kind, you, do, you, can, you can handle it somehow. Well, that quote, the local habitation and a name is, is uh, it's from Shakespeare's well, Midsummer Night Dream, right? Uh, the, the lunatic, the lover and the poet are of imagination all compact. They're all uh, crazy with, with stuff. And the poet has one thing, the poet's pen turns into shape. The poet is the one who can, the, the madman and the crazy lover can't order their experience, but the poet can because he or she has this tool. He says, the poet's eye glances from heaven to earth, from earth to heaven. And as imagination bodies forth the forms of things unknown, the poet's pen turns into shapes and gives to local, gives to airy nothing, a local habitation and a name. Again, there's that power of shaping and shaping is meaning. Shaping is what saves us from being crazy or besotted lovers or whatever, who knows? Well, when, just when you when you like quote Shakespeare and you and you I don't know if that's an iambic pentameter it probably is but when you when you read those lines are so satisfying you you yeah. like you go I think I have a whole you know I think I got a grasp on things I I I don't know there's just something about the music it's the the music and the beauty of the language and the beat and everything it helps you make sense sense of things, um, which is what I love about your poems is they they just give you that lyric moment where you go, yeah. Um, it's like, it's a little bit like the pause between breaths or something where it's just like, <sighs> which actually, I mean, if we go back to the first poem, um, where you are describing Jesus sitting at the table just with his hands open. In a way, that is sort of a description of just being empty and being with feeling and being with the moment. Um, the way you describe him kind of reminded me of that too. Even, but even though that's not what the woman was talking about, that wasn't what she was saying to give you solace. She was saying your brother is still alive and sitting at the table with Jesus. But what you imagine is um, he didn't look lonely. He just sat there with his arms spread and his empty hands open as if he was patiently waiting for someone to put something in them. It's really kind of an existential moment um, that you describe Jesus having there. 
um, <laughs> which is to me is sort of a little like a moment of peace that poetry gives me. Yeah. I don't know if that was your intention there, but. No, I like that. I like that. It's a, and, and even in this silly little church window, it was obviously it was effective because I remember it. Mm -hmm. but, but, you know, it is this poised moment where deity is, is, is there in this most human form that the Christians could give him the form of, of Jesus in his body. But what's happening? Is this, the, is this the celebration of the wedding? Is this the Last Supper and they're about to put the nails in him tomorrow? Where are we? And he's in his world and I'm in mine. And there's yeah, no connection. It's, it's funny that in, in the religion, there is this moment of solace in the religion, but it's not in the narrative that's presented to you. It's some, it's some piece of art that some artist put on the wall of the church. Um, that is depicting an unknown moment that's kind of coming out of that artist's imagination. Yeah. Anyway, um, let's <laughs> move on. <laughs> you can see I, I really get into these poems. And sure. <laughs> um, there's a poem on page 64 called Trying Hard Just to Listen. And this moves into some of the less narrative poems and into the more lyric poems. Maybe we'll talk a little bit about the difference between narrative and lyric, because that's always an interesting conversation. But um, for now, let's just listen to this poem, Trying Hard Just to Listen, Ellipsis. Trying hard just to listen. Trying hard just to listen and let the story enter though I'm tempted to turn away or to use my own words to put a wall between us. Eager to reassure quickly as if compassion could save me from my own fear. How my ears burn with a blush of what she confesses or go cold and bloodless as he tells of all he endured. That was Gregory Orr reading, trying hard just to listen from the last love poem I will ever write. This is Deanna Riley. This is the Hive Poetry Collective on KSQD Santa Cruz 90.7 FM. So for me, this poem was about a couple of, <clears throat> a couple of ways of how difficult it is to look at disorder and to listen to disorder. Um, and um, a, a couple of things, you talk about a threshold that people have of their ability to pro approach their own disorder in their lives and look at it and write about it. And a threshold that we all have in terms of reading poetry and listening to stories and taking in the suffering of other people um, or even just the disorder in the poem because some poems are very disordered and they're hard to sort out what's happening in them. No. Um, so that's one thing, maybe you could talk a little bit about this threshold concept, but I also wonder if you ever had people say to you, you know, I love poetry, but 
sometimes I just can't hear about this painful stuff. I just can't handle it. Uh, uh, some people will say that. And, and then there's other people that are like, I need to hear it. I guess. And I guess that's the threshold. Do you want to just talk a little bit about that? Well, I think so. I think you t- the threshold is, is a, is a place I talk about in, I guess, poetry of survival and, 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 uh, must talk about the primer too. Um, yeah, it's this, it, uh, I mean, we as poets a, a, approach the threshold of disorder, what we can barely stand. It's, it's at that place where we can just stand the chaos and just feel uh, the possibility of ordering it that is, is an intense place of being. But for some of us, depending on what the subject matter of that intensity of being is, or even the form that it takes sometimes. Uh, some people think that a certain kind of poetry is too chaotic in and of itself to listen to, not even the subject matter. But of course, it's the subject matter too can, can be too much for people or can be they, they can't handle it or they don't like it or whatever. I think this is one of the wonderful things about poetry is we're always, as readers, looking looking for the poems that, that we can open to. Not easily, not casually. I mean, because the poems that really matter to us, the poems that come to sustain us, the poems we come to love, are poems that, that, that challenge us. Uh, and it's, it's a challenge first as a reader to open yourself, to listen, to be, um, to trust, the poem and trust the poet. It's it's hard to do. It's hard. It's hard to know when that happens. Just as it's hard to listen to the to the story of suffering from another person, and we want to rush in with premature orderings. We want to reassure them, or as if compassion could could save not just them but ourselves. You know, it is really difficult to just listen and pay attention to people when they're suffering. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. And understandably, it's scary and it's heartbreaking. Yeah, yeah, but it is really destructive to come in and just come in with some kind of platitude, like you'll get beyond this or that's in the past or yeah, there's a reason for this. Um, so the same attitude toward just being a good friend and being a good human being and being able to listen to other people is also what really helps you not only be a good writer, because you can go to the threshold of, of what you're able to cope with and make order of it but it also allows you to read more in different kinds of poetry because you can live with the, with the disorder that you read in that poem. So there's this interplay, I guess, between being open to other people and their experiences and expanding your writing and expanding your reading. They all... Absolutely. It's, it's absolutely true that, the, that you know, for those of us who write poetry and for whom the writing of poetry is, is essential for our uh, sense of well-being and coherence and 
meaning in the world. It's it's also true for us that that we have we have we are readers of poetry, and that there are poems we read and reread because because they open us, because they they break down uh, structures and barriers we use to superficially order the world, what you're calling platitudes. Or for me, the, the consulting image and the, just to keep the references in the poems we're looking at today, um, sitting down to feast with Jesus. I mean, obviously what could be more wonderful than such an image for uh, um, having a party picnic with Jesus, but, but you know, um, well, well, I mean, that's why poetry is anti-cliche. Like, <laughs> that's the one so. thing you, you can't have in a poem. You can't have a cliche because you have to look at things freshly or it's just not doing the work. Well, I would say that I'm totally capable of writing cliches in my poems, but I just try not to print those. I try to discover them beforehand, I think. I think a good cliche is uh, fun. <laughs> yeah, well, there's mostly it has to be something to them, right? They would people would be saying them over and over exactly. again. Well, why don't we um, move on to this villanelle uh, called "We Were That Joke," and I guess you do like to occasionally write in form. Do you want to talk about the value of form? Why don't we read the poem first and then you can talk a little bit about why you choose to write about some things in form and others not. So why don't we just go jump right into it and then we will talk about it. And then the poet walks and says, oh, I have to say something before that. Okay. <laughs> okay. And uh -huh. it's this, it's that I don't, I can't really write in forms except villanelles. I have some kind of crazy thing where villanelles satisfy something deep in me. And I think it has something to do with the incantatory repetition of the form itself. That the, if you know a villanelle form, it repeats lines again and again, they keep coming back. And in a strict villanelle, you only have one single rhyme in the whole poem. And what I love about villanelles, what I need from the form of villanelles is, is that they, uh, they're a way of processing obsession. And obsession seems to me to be one of the worst mental states one can be in. For example, let's think about the pandemic. I mean, who among us did not become, fall into obsessive thinking about, you know, in the, in the dangers of, of COVID. Well, the, anyway, first, the first thing we did was to get obsessed with toilet paper. Well, there you go. See, and, and you know, and, and that's a kind of form of craziness, isn't it? Yes, and it's like obsession is just an endless recircling and circling. So what I love about villanelles, the greatest villanelles, Dylan Thomas's Do Not Go That in Gentleman to That Good Night or Elizabeth Bishop's One Art. What I love about those villanelles is they're trying to work their way through this uh, obsession and it's a kind of spiral they're trying to get to some something that'll free them from the obsessive repetition some revelation or epiphany or something anyway there you go or's theory of villanelles we were that joke we were that joke a couple 
joined at the hip. But such an oddity had its own appeal. For us, the wounds kissed long before the lips. Easy enough to get past the nasty quips, how codependent we were, how unreal and comically odd a couple joined at the hip. The risk of this, we're a single nerve from toe to tip. When one is hurt, the other's bound to squeal. The fate of those whose wounds kiss long before their lips. The upside, our lives are braided. Two strips of soul stuff wound together so we feel that when our bodies couple at the hip, it's what the gods intended, a joy that rips the heart out and serves it as a meal. When your wounds have kissed long before your lips, love will always be the bittersweet of whips. The hurt will deepen long before it heals. You learn such things when you're joined at the hip and your wounds have kissed long before your lips. Oh my God, I love that. That was We Were That Joke, a poem by Gregory Orr from his book, The Last Love Poem I Will Ever Write. This is Deanna Riley on the Hive Poetry Collective, KSQD Santa Cruz 90.7 FM. Well, you know, this really is an example of taking something, you know, a lot of there's wounds in this and um, codependency and um, the hurt will deepen long before it heals, but something about the shape and the craft and of, of a villanelle just, oh my gosh, it just, it makes it something completely different. It's like a rap kind of. Well, you know, it, 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 it lifts the spirit. Rhythmical language and cantatory language, it lifts the spirit. It, it, you know, it, it's, it's, it's why this, you can have the saddest love song in the world and it still makes you, it's, it's like Sappho says, it's bittersweet. Let me just read that first tercet. We were that joke, a couple joined at the hip. But such an oddity has its own appeal. For us, the wounds kiss long before the lips. I mean, it, you're, you're starting kind of on a light note. We were that joke. But the wounds kissed long before the lips. I mean, having kissed right next to wounds, it's so great. <laughs> you. Um, so, um, yeah, you, I get, you love this form for that. It's a different, like pantoons and villanelles are a little bit, a bit alike. Um, both pantoons and villanelles repeat the same lines over and over in a formula. They both have rhymes, but the villanelle is more obsessive somehow because it has that same rhyme going all the way through. Hip, lips, quips, hip, tip, lip, strips, hip, rips, lips, whips, hip, lip. Oh, and then the, the rhymes that don't have that 
the lines that don't have that rhyme have a, their, uh, their own rhyme, appeal, unreal, squeal, feel, meal, heels. So the villanelle is more rhymy than a pantoum. A pantoum has like an A, B, A, B, C, A, C, A, or something like that. Um, so it's more- crazy form. Well, I guess you're a villain. <laughs> <laughs> it worked for me well this is lovely though because I mean not only does the form make something lighter of the pain but the poem is about the merging of love and pain and how the pain brings the, the lovers together I think my wife would agree that that's how it happened <laughs> I think Margaret Atwood has this little short poem from a million years ago that it's um we're like a hook and eye your hook and my eye that's a little tougher though yeah that's uh, yeah. Yeah, that's uh, that's her uh, early very sharp wit very yeah angry. and and it's it's a it's a wonderful poem but uh, <laughs> yeah. i hope i hope this is a little no, you guys have, equi there's some equanimity here in your poem. Hers are more like she's being messed with big time. Okay, let's go to It's Time. This is the last poem that we're going to be reading today. And it's the last poem in your book. So why don't you go and read It's Time. It's time. It's time to turn the TV off. And listen, that noise, what is it? Maybe it's only crickets. Maybe it's distant music. Maybe people are dancing somewhere, not far from here, the beloved among them. Out into the street, we need to investigate to find out what's there, even if it's only crickets. That was Gregory Orr's poem, It's Time. I, do all the poems in this book have a dot, dot, dot? No, they don't, just a lot of them. A lot of uh, them most are. of them do. Uh, and in fact, the selected books of the beloved, they just don't have any titles. So they often, what they have is this, the opening words or the opening line of the poem becomes sort of takes the place of the title. Uh, I can't explain it except that I, as a poet, I never did enjoy trying to title poems. And then also when I started writing all of these beloved poems, it wasn't possible. They just didn't have titles. They just begin. So then you put them in a book and you have to put something up at the top of the page. Well, there's an old tradition of that, right? Aren't like there is. Shakespeare's sonnets, I think, are are all like that. So what a, audience, if you're not sure what I'm talking about, the title of this poem is It's Time, dot dot dot. And then the poem begins, it's time to turn the TV off. So often G Greg's titles are just the first few lines of the poem with an ellipsis. Um, well, two things that come really come out at me about this poem. One is 
this is just about the value of just listening and just being. Uh, that's what this poem is about, just kind of like Jesus in that picture, just sitting there with his hands open, just being receptive and just listening, which I wonder if you think might be a way of just standing at that threshold and taking in whatever might be happening in a calm, receptive way without judgment. And with some secret hope that it might be the beloved, who knows? But and that concept of the beloved, you have the beloved and the book. Yeah, the book is this gigantic anthology of every song and lyric poem ever written. And it's just, it's just this humongous anthology. It's, uh, it's a jukebox the size of the moon, right? And you just, from it, we take, it's, it's a repository of, of testimony about what it is to be alive from all cultures, all times, concentrated in these forms of poems and songs. And then uh, we download from it what we need to live, right? We make our own smaller version of the book, the 10 or 12 poems or songs that we need to live, right? And we all do that. If we don't, we're goofing off. We've so failed. it's a symbol. It's a symbol of the human song, of the human lyric. It is. It is. And of the human impulse to give testimony about it. Like when we write a poem, when you write a poem, you write it first for your own individual purposes, for to satisfy your needs and desires and so forth. But then as soon as it's done that, you know, as soon as the poet has, has done, uh, has selfishly and joyously written the poem for their own purposes, as soon as they're done with it, it goes into the book. Because it's done its job for us as poets. Now the question is, hmm, could it do a job for anybody else? Could anybody else enjoy it? I'll put it in the book. Everything goes into the book. And then people come along and they take stuff out of the book that they need, right? Make playlists, playlists for your soul. It's culture. It's culture, it's, and it's, but it's active culture. Emerson said, and this is, Emerson said in, in, the, in his journals once, he said, make your own Bibles. Here's a guy who quit the pulpit, quit, quit preaching and, and became a philosopher and, sort of writer about nature, right? And he says, make your own Bibles. Gather together all the poems and passages and stuff that mean the most to you. And, and, and make that Bible that's gonna sustain you. It's, and he talks, about, he talks about what we need to do is become active souls, not passive souls. The active soul is someone who makes their own Bible out of all of this, you know, out of the Beatles and this and that and the other thing, they put together their own little playlist. It's very interactive. Absolutely. You, you listen and you create. And this poem we just, this poem we just read was about the listening part of it and yeah. just being open. So you bring it in and then you kind of give birth to, to something else. Um, all right, I want 
we only have a little bit of time left and barely have time to talk about this, but in your primer of poets and readers, uh, the primer for poets and readers of poetry, which I really recommend, um, you, you just have something, I just wanna read here and then just a few comments about it before we leave. And I just wanna say also, everyone be on the lookout for Gregory Orr's new book that's gonna be coming out about, uh, what's it called again? Selected Books of the Beloved. Uh, which is all about this concept of the beloved and the book and um, what we've been talking about here. But I wanna talk a little, I wanna read what he has here about lyric versus narrative poetry, which I love so much because I was a big DC Comics fan when I was a kid. And this is what Gregory R. wrote. When I was a kid, there used to be a show on TV called The Adventures of Superman. It was quite hokey. You can probably find episodes of it on YouTube. In the episode I remember best, Superman came to the rescue of a tribe whose idol had been desecrated by thieves who stole the huge diamond that was set in the idol's forehead. The thieves fell into the volcano when they tried to escape the island. Served them right, but the diamond disappeared with them. Superman, in his disguise as Clark Kent, saved the day by squeezing a lump of coal in his fist with such force it was transformed into a huge diamond which he pretended to find in the shrubbery and quietly placed back where it belonged. Coal and diamonds, both are the same element, carbon, carbon. But a diamond is a lump of coal transformed into crystal. That's the lyric poet's dream, to put language under such pressure that it changes into a fasted, radiant, and mysterious thing. Love that. So do you have any ending comments that you want to make based on that? Well, I, I don't think I could improve on that. It, it's, it's uh, I mean, I believe it. That's somehow what lyric poems do for me. And, and, you know, um, again, it's, it's a, it's a particular taste. Narrative does other things that are wondrous and uh, strange as well. But for me, you know, I think it's, my temperament is, is, is lyric and, and that is for me, the dream. I mean, you, you, I feel it in Emily Dickinson. I adore her. You know, she, she, uh, dare you, she has this poem about where it's, it's approaching uh, a, a burning forge at blacksmiths. She says, dare you see a soul at the white heat, you know, draw near. If you do draw near. And basically she's saying herself, she's this, you know, she has these images actually of herself as volcano, doesn't she? Uh, I, I, I love Dickinson. I love that strange concentration. I also yeah. love her strangeness, but, uh, but that dream of, of, of being, of language being both so compressed, so compressed that the process reverses and it radiates out. That's the... I think that's a lyric poet's dream. It's certainly my dream. Yeah, Rilke, Rilke, Robert Bly, there's a lot of them um, that we love for that. Well, that's about all the time we have for today. Um, it has been wonderful talking to you and I'm looking forward to having you back on the hive 
next book comes out so we can I can read that book and go deep into those poems and talk to you about those a little more. Thank you for being with me today. Thank you. It's fun. This has been the Hive Poetry Collective. I'm Deanna Riley. I've been talking to Gregory Orr. This is KSQD Santa Cruz 90.7 FM. Thanks for tuning in.